So, uh, we are going to start getting into the intestinal period. So, this week is uh, the uh, question and answer, and if there are no questions, we'll do some introduction, and then next week we'll start the full uh, intertestamental period study. Um, so, that means I'm going to give you homework assignments, and no. you're going to have to do some reading and things like that. <laughs> Psalm 40, great idea. Uh, would you like to read it out? All right. <clears throat> I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praying for God. Many will see it and fear, and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts which are toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare them, if I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great congregation. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Amen. Do not delay, oh my God. You know, I, um, it was approaching my grandmother's 90th birthday, and she passed uh, probably about six months after her 90th birthday. It was, anyway, we had a big family hoedown, and uh, we were putting together a memorial book for my grandmother, and uh, so all of the grandkids went around and said, so what's your favorite song? What's your favorite verse in the Bible? And, uh, and they were all looking for like nice little pithy things that you could throw out in a sentence or two. And we all have favorite verses like that. You know, I've, uh, John 20, 31 is one of my favorites, right? Um, so they came to me and it's like Psalm 40 in its entirety, the whole thing. But that's, that's what I want to, to put down as my favorite. Um, and of course, my favorite, I, every psalm is my favorite, but uh, this one is especially um, important to me. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. How many of you have felt like that? Like, man, just waiting. Is He listening? Well, He is listening, and He hears your cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Um, I mean, and as, as uh, Dr. Gossam is reading through, it's like every verse here just pops off the page to me. And it, it does have, I mean, this is a psalm of David, and we all know the life of David. It was kind of like this, right? Roller coaster um, he had his, his highs and his lows, and in the, the lowest of his lows, we get some of the great uh, wisdom literature where he's pouring out his heart before the Lord, and uh, 
and we see David as a man after God's heart, not because he was perfect, he was far from perfect, and that's part of what's preserved for us, is to, to see the life of uh, a godly man um, who has failed repeatedly, and yet uh, comes to the Lord. And right now on Friday night, we're studying through uh, Leviticus, and we're looking at the different, at the very beginning of Leviticus, the first seven chapters is all about the different uh, offerings that were prescribed for uh, the Hebrew children as they came out of uh, came out of Egypt, and uh, and there the first three are actually listed here. You have a sacrifice and meal offering, so that was the, the second of the sacrifices after the burnt offering. The burnt offering was for atonement for sin, and it would be consumed entirely, and it had to do with um, the shedding of blood. For, um, for atonement, for covering sin, paying a ransom. There's a couple of different meanings depending if you're looking at it in Aramaic or if you're looking at it in Hebrew. But it all has to do with uh, the idea of uh, taking away the righteous anger of God about sin in your life through a covering and uh, an actual restoration of where the price paid, and you're not the one paying the price. And so that's the, the very first of the sacrifices that's listed is the burnt offering, and the very next one is the grain offering. It's the only one that's without blood. And it's an offering of worship and thankfulness for the provision of God in giving us life. And, and within that life, he provides every moment of the day. And you, you actually see that. He says, the sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, but my ears you have pierced or opened. You have uh, made, um, made it possible for me to be in communion with you, to become a bondservant. Burnt offering and sinner offering you have not required. Why has he not required it? It's because we can't pay it. We can't actually make the appropriate offering. And we read in Hebrews later, as the author of Hebrews is commenting on Levitical sacrifices, um, how only uh, Christ could make that sacrifice, and he could do it once for all time. And then he says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I will delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written within my heart. So that's talking about that new birth that happens, that is... Um, Ezekiel talks about it that our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. That we're given a new heart. And, uh, and Jeremiah talks about it in that new covenant that he's expressing. So you see so much, it's so rich in this psalm that's telling us about the work that is God, God has done for us. And we get to the very end, he says, since I am afflicted and needy, it's not like, well, if I become afflicted and needy. It's like, since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Excellent choice of song. Um, so I mentioned before we uh, read out the psalm and I got sidetracked with just the incredibleness of it. Um, that we're going to be doing a study this summer, uh, and hopefully we'll finish it before the fall. I know that there are many of you that are skeptical that that can occur, but we're going to try and do a, a study of the intertestamental period. So that means that there's, in that period, uh, from Malachi to Matthew uh, in your Bible, there's a lot that happened that is not recorded in our scripture. Some of it is in extra-biblical literature, some of it in the uh, what's called the Apocrypha. Um, and we're going to take a look at, at some of those uh, writings that were done in that period. We're going to take a look at the history of that period and how what was happening was God's plan in shaping uh, the people to receive Messiah. So we know that Messiah, the Christ, would come through the line of David. And David was of the tribe of Judah. Um, so that means that in the tribe of Judah, that they're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. 
and uh, he had 12 sons, and, and Judah was one of them, and he wasn't the first. So it's interesting, and you see this pattern repeated throughout the Bible, that it's often not the first and the most logical in worldly terms through whom redemption comes, or through whom the victory over evil comes. Um, and in this case, it was Judah, who was the fourthborn, not the firstborn. And that uh, the Messiah was promised to come through that line. And that we understand if we keep going back in, uh, in the lineage to Abraham, that a promise was made. And that promise was made not just to his uh, immediate descendants, but to the whole world. That the whole world would be blessed through what God would do through the descendants of Abraham. And so that was speaking forward to the Christ. And so we understand that we see a, a revelation uh, that has been expressed. So I always think of prophetic um, literature as revealing uh, the, uh, the person and the, the character and the purpose of God. So it's speaking from God to us, revealing himself. And that the wisdom literature is when you actually get that, when your ear is pierced or opened, there's a, a response back. And that sometimes that's a cry of the heart, like we, we saw in, uh, in Psalm 40. Um, sometimes it's in the form of different actions that people will take and how they live out their life. But you see that, that dialogue uh, that occurs in prophetic and wisdom literature and as it progresses, it goes all the way through the Old Testament, and then there's a gap. And a lot of times we think, well, that must mean that God didn't have any more to say. He actually had a lot to say in that gap. He was actually doing a lot in, in revealing who he is, his person, his character, and his plan. And it all goes back to uh, different parts of Revelation. So that's where we're going. Um, and I, I mentioned that this would be a question and answer week, and I noticed Tim Reddington's not here, so I don't know if we'll get some of the drill down questions. But uh, this is your opportunity before we jump into that study where I kind of do a monologue, which is what I'm doing right now. And you don't want to catch me monologuing, okay? um, or I don't want you to catch me monologuing. So this is your opportunity to ask any question that you might have had in the course of any of our teaching, especially recently in John. We were going through John and it's theologically rich. There's a lot of things we didn't cover necessarily in depth that maybe there was some, you know, really uh, question that's just sitting there itching you and you need it scratched. Um, this is your opportunity. So before we jump in, do you guys have any questions, no matter what it is, doesn't have to be related to the specifics of what I talk, was talking about in our preparation. Fire away. I know Jim has a question. No? I can... Jack. Uh, well, we were getting through Acts in like verse 5, or in chapter 5. Okay. Um, and that 
one of the things that um, occurred in the early church was um, God wanted to make sure that he got that foundation sure, right, through the apostolic firsthand witness. And so um, we understand that they did some mighty works that we don't necessarily see after the, that era. And um, this goes into a lot of teaching about um, what, what some people believe about the work of the Holy Spirit and how in this apostolic era there were uh, more sign-type uh, works of the Spirit and healings and, and miracles and things like that. And at the end of the apostolic age uh, or era when the canon was sealed, that that ceased and, and so there's a cessationist theory about um, the work of the Spirit in the church today. And then there are those that believe that, no, that's not really what this is referring to, that this awe and fear that came over the whole church um, was something different that was occurring and not necessarily associated with the, the, uh, the limited period of miracles and, that we observed. I think what you see is you see God... Uh, putting forth that foundation and wants it to be uh, pure and, and undefiled, right? So you see that even in uh, the expression of, of what Ananias and Sapphira, so the story there is that they were believers and they brought an offering, but they held some back, right? And nobody would have known that they held some back unless the Spirit revealed it. Um, what did the Spirit reveal? Did he reveal um, that they they owed this to the church? No, just they lied about no, it. No, they, they sold it for 10000 and they only gave 5000 right. so that's what we sold it for. Right, and if, if they would have come and said, you know, we promised this land and, uh, and we sold it for more than we expected and we would like to keep um, the excess and, yeah. and fulfill what our initial promise was probably would have been no problem. Right? right? Or at least we don't have an indication that that would have been right. a problem. But it was a condition of the heart. That the condition of the heart, especially in the early church, was really critical. Because you're, you're laying the foundation and you're going to have a structure built upon this foundation that uh, of which Christ is the cornerstone needs to be sure. Needs to be pure. And so what you see here is about purity, not about unity. So you see that there is unity. It says, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord. So that means that they, um, they were all in alignment. Yeah, and prior to that, a lot of them were giving some things and doing this, and then the little story of right. Spira and Ananias. Right. And, uh, well, the question is, you know, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. Now, are they just, well, we're just going to stand in the background and see what happens? Or are they the Pharisees and well, they, the, the hierarchy to see what's going on? Well, they did actually, well, so one, it could be out of fear. It's like these guys were getting in the face of the Sanhedrin, um, which would happen, right? So that's coming up next. Right. These guys are going to be called to account for their testimony, and they're not going to back down and are thrown in jail, and, uh, and they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do with these these babbling idiots, right? That's what their view of the, right. the apostles were. And that's when Gamaliel steps forward and says, hold it, you know, if this is of God, you'll be fighting against God. This is of man, let it run its course. It'll, it'll soon fail. Remember, look at history. Um, and so there's some wisdom that gets spoken about them. So it could be that they were in fear for their lives. But I don't necessarily see that. Because you've got guys like Stephen that would come after this. Right, right. Right? And, and I suspect that there were those that hung with them. So it wasn't about association um, in, in this time. I think it's more about purity. And that it has to do with sanctification. So, so when I look, and I'll, I'll go back to my study in Leviticus right now. So my study in Leviticus tells me that there are two aspects of how we um, have communion with God. The first is access. 
that we need to have access through sacrifice, through Christ. We can't get through the veil to the, to the mercy seat of God except that high priest removed that obstacle. <coughs> so there's an issue of access. But then there's also an issue of fellowship that is necessary to lead to communion. So once um, the veil is torn, um, this is the part where um, you actually have to get to know the Lord in order to come into true communion. And so that's what we're doing right now, for example. We're studying through the Word, and that's about true uh, communion. And we're learning about who God is and what He's called to us and what He's saying to us. Um, and the end result of that is, is that we'll commune with Him. right? And that that, uh, that last part has to do with separation. So if you look at Leviticus, and I see your hand, Bob, we'll get you. Leviticus, the second part of it, is about how the people were separated for the purpose of being pure such that they could be in fellowship and not just have access. In, in the same sense, although in verse 13 it says, no one has here, I think that's kind of what he's asking about. In the context of Ananias and Sapphira and in verse 12, many signs and wonders are regularly done. Is there an, possibly an aspect of these people that won't join they're, they're, in spite of all they have seen, they don't want to face the reality of their sins. And uh, yeah, to me, there's almost a message there because verse 14 then says, but you know, a multitude's got added still, you know, they never yep. believe we're at it. So you have those that are being added, multitudes. Yep. And on the other hand, you have this group that, that avoid and, you know, they'll stand off. They've seen the signs and wonders, right. but they don't want to come to face with the reality of their need for a Savior. And I see a lesson in that for me today, too. Yeah. You tell people about it. They're going to yeah. see what happens. And, you know, Jesus says, even if they see someone right. rise from the dead, they're not going to, you know, repent. Right. Uh, and again, I would. So I, I see that it's kind of a lesson here that you're going to have hope yes. as you walk day by day. You're going to have the people that see it all, and they're just not willing to face their sins. Right. And, well, and I think that's the purity piece I'm, I'm yeah. trying to allude to well, here. Is that. I esteem of. Like Billy Graham, a lot of people, and uh, you know, no matter who it is, you know, right. politics, you put it in that. Yeah. You know, they held them in the high esteem, but still the politicians behind, you know, when they get back to business, it's just crooked dealings as normal. Right. But they still hold Billy Graham in high esteem, which doesn't do any, them any good. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's, that. I think that's kind of Bob's point, is that, yeah. okay, what's the condition of our heart? So... We understand that purity and, and that God is examining the heart, um, that it's not just our confession. We read that in Romans chapter 10, right? With the mouth, with, with the mouth we confess, with the heart we believe, right? That, so we, we have that aspect. And that um, certainly there were those that just made a good confession. And as Bob indicated, and as you indicated, maybe behind the scenes, that wasn't really what was going on in their heart. And so, yeah, they would kind of hold them off a little bit. Um, but I don't think, I think what's being emphasized there is that idea that um, we are accountable not just in confession, but also in how we live. And that how we live is the outward expression of the inward heart condition. And that that's important. And that especially important in the early church. And that it wasn't just a, a political thing that they were building. It wasn't just um, it's an institution, but it was actually the the organism of the church itself that was important. Okay. Just kind of give me another great lesson for me, just as I walk in this culture. Um, you know, am I willing to be identified? As a follower of Christ, or am I just going to stand out and watch the fireworks? Right. You know, as we as the society gets more and more intolerant of Christianity. Yeah. Well, and that's this is where uh, they would go to uh, Solomon's porch, which, if you look at where that is, uh, and I can bring up the temple pictures here and show you um, that area where there's <coughs> in the <coughs> excuse me. In the Temple Mount, there were there were these uh, 
colonnade areas where they would have an, an overhang so that people could set up their shops and they could so a lot of business was conducted there outside of the temple proper before you would enter into the courts and so there was this place called Solomon's Porch right and it was a place where the people could come and, and Jesus had taught there right we, re we read that back in the gospels um, so we know that they were still coming and hanging out and they were of one accord they were in agreement that um, this is the truth. That God from the beginning had planned this out and that that um, expression of God redeeming humanity by entering into to history itself, by becoming fully human, um, was Jesus. That that had just occurred. So they were all in agreement on that. But there's still, there's still an aspect of walk. So it wasn't just hanging out or being associated in confession, it was also an issue of purity. Is that helpful? Yeah. Any other questions? Um, so in John 3.25, um, it's just a small detail, but I was curious. Um, so it mentioned that John had disciples, and that was after Jesus had come. Yep. So I was just curious why he had disciples. So, um, in, in John 3.25, it says, uh, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Right? And they came to John and said to him, uh, He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, is baptizing all, uh, to whom you have testified. So that's referring back to when uh, John baptized Jesus. Right? And at that baptism, there was uh, a voice from heaven that um, showed that this was indeed the Christ. And there was a dove, the Holy Spirit, came down. And so there was not only an audible, but a visual under, you know, expression of this is the Christ, right? And John saw that. So afterwards, um, people were still following John. And every time that he saw Christ, he said, that's the one you're supposed to be following. He's the one I'm talking about and telling you about, right? So some that were still following John came to him and said, you know, the guy who you testified about, Jesus, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. So they were concerned that their ranks were shrinking because people were actually understanding what John was saying. And they were starting to follow Jesus rather than John. But they were still following John because there were those that... Um, both that were uh, Hebrews by you know, one of the tribes by descent, and there were also people that made themselves um, of the Jewish religion um, by uh, becoming a proselyte. And so, and they were very zealous. You know, they understood that this was the, the revelation and the way to God, and John was proclaiming that. And he actually had the same proclamation that Jesus had. It's just that Jesus, uh, John had a delegated authority, Jesus had the actual authority. Um, so when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, um, when Jesus said that, he was saying that as a king. When John said it, he was pointing to the king. And so there were some, though, that didn't quite get it. They said, hold it, your clan is dropping, and they're all starting to follow this guy, and he's baptizing, right? So um, John says a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven so he's talking about that delegated authority you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent ahead of him he who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice so this joy of mine has been made full he must increase but I must decrease so John is fully expressing, saying, I am not the Christ. I only have a delegated authority. He is the Christ. He is the true authority. Um, you should be following him. So that there were still those following John was just because they didn't quite get it. Um, but they, John was doing everything he could to help them get it. They were probably really loyal, too. They were very loyal. In fact, that's what disciple means. You would actually kind of attach yourself to your teacher. And uh, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to attach ourselves to our <laughs> okay. So what did 
Mary say when she saw Jesus risen at the tomb? Rabboni, teacher. Right? So she, and, and, and Jesus said, don't, don't grab on to me. That's another area that we can go into. But anyway, does that help? Yes. Okay. Questions?
down through the nations. And then what you find out is that there is, uh, even among those, there is one that it is necessary for him to step forward in integrity to preserve the people. And that was Joseph. And so when they were at a time of great trial, they had rejected Joseph, um, the 11th born, and uh, because he had favor. So in the world's view, this is a guy that they wanted to kill and get out of the way because he was um, in the way for them to get the large inheritance, the land, right? <clears throat> so they tried to kill him. And he ends up in Egypt, and because it was God's plan, um, the people were actually preserved through the one they had rejected. So in that sense, Joseph was a type of Christ. Although he wasn't the Christ, and he had his own set of problems, nonetheless, he recognized that it was God's plan to preserve the lives of many through the life of one. And so Joseph ends up dying in Egypt, and uh, we understand Jacob and his family went to Egypt, and after many years they fell out of favor, and, and then Moses comes along, who was of the tribe of Levi, and he leads the people out. And you would think that this would help them really understand, right? That God would bring them out by an incredible deliverance. That there was a battle of the gods that occurred between uh, Yahweh, the, um, the God that has announced his name personally to his people, and, uh, and the gods of the world. And so you see the clash of the gods, and in every instance... Yahweh rules, right? He is the one um, through whom deliverance and life really comes. And he ends up taking Pharaoh, the king of the world, and unthroning him. And Pharaoh says, okay, get out. Just leave. And, and what happens is the people are so grateful that these people are leaving, they actually give them all sorts of booty on their way out. And these people are leaving... Um, through great trial, uh, but they were preserved through the sacrifice of the lamb, right? The firstborn was preserved. And so there's this pattern of how deliverance would come through sacrifice. And they were led out into the desert, and then Pharaoh changed his mind. It's like, man, these were good slaves. Um, we need them. And so he goes after them with all of his armies, and the people are in between the waters and the armies. And God is holding off the armies by a pillar of fire, right? And they're like, what do we do? And Moses, who's leading them, is commanded to part the waters. God parts the waters, and it dries up. A great wind came, dried up the ground. Because you can imagine all this muck and mire and stuff they have to trudge through. There's more than a million of them. And that would make quite a, quite a mess in the, you know, in the mud room. And so it's all dried up, and the people come through, and as they get through to the other side, the, the column that's separating the armies from the people is removed, and the armies come charging in after them, and the waters come down and kill, kill the armies, and the people are truly free. Everything is now behind them. And they go to the mountain of God to actually commune with God. Right? And there they're given um, a declaration of who God is, what righteousness really is, what it means to be in his presence. And it only took them 40 days and they forgot. And, uh, and they built a, you know, first they had a hoedown on the, the side of the river, Moses sings a great song, and they do a dance, and, um, and they had some bills, and so it was a hoedown. And then they go to the mountain, and Moses goes up, and the people said, you know, I like this hoedown thing, let's build another god, let's, you know, have some bills, let's do some dance. And, uh, and, but they're back caught in the very thing that they were just delivered from, right away. And at that point, um, Moses intervenes as a priest. As we understand the emergence then of the role of the priesthood um, as coming forth. And that it's combined with the role of the prophet. So the prophet and the priest are very closely associated, and they're all pointing to the kingship of God. So you see the prophet, the priest, and the king starting to take form um, in the early revelation. 
And these people then go on and they conquered the land according to God's plan after wandering in the desert for 40 years. They had to be purified. And they come in, they take the land, and they were told not to adopt the customs of the land. So what did they do? Well, they first set up judges um, to help them um, remain in this place of purity so that they could commune with God, but that didn't work very well because every man did what was right in his own eyes. So God brought the people a king because they looked at the land around them and they said, we want a king. God said, you already got one. Me. They said, no, no, no. We want a king. He says, you don't understand what you're asking for. That this king, the, the, like a, the, the nations around you, will actually put you in uh, bondage to him. He will take your children. He will take your crops. Um, you will be a servant of that king who is not righteous and just. But nonetheless, the idea of the king, the righteous king, is valid. So we will give you a king. And so they're given a king. And we understand that that kingship, you see it played out, both the bad king and the good king from the very beginning, and what that looks like. And we understand that the, the pattern of the good king is going to come through this broken line, this line of Judah. And a promise is made to David that there would be a king for Israel, and in fact, this king would be an eternal king. So that means he's going to be a king of the whole world. Um, would come through this line. And then we read through the kings and we read how after David died and, and his son Solomon comes in and Solomon makes what David had established as an administration on earth very fruitful. We understand he was one of the greatest kings of all time. He actually took Israel from a nation to an empire which was very unusual, because these guys were little, they're like the mice that the cats play with. And when the cats are away, the mice will play, right? Well, Solomon actually became a pretty fat mouse. Um, but nonetheless, the big cats, Egypt, Assyria, and later Babylon and Persia, the big cats, they were still there. And when Solomon um, died and his son became king, he started following the way of the world. In fact, Solomon was following the way of the world. We understand that even though he had administrative wisdom, he had some really incredible foolish things in his life. Right? And uh, what happened is the women led him astray. And we actually see warnings as Solomon's like getting some wisdom about the things that he didn't have wisdom about as a youth. And we see that in some of the Proverbs. As, as Solomon is like, oh, okay, I'm starting to get it now. Um, but anyway, his son didn't get it, got bad advice, and we see the kingdom divided. And the kingdom was divided into uh, nine and two. Say nine and two, because even though there were 12 tribes, um, one of them had no land right. They had certain cities, but they didn't have a, a territory. And uh, that would be the Levites and that their job was to serve in uh, the tabernacle and in the administration of all of the cultic practice that the Hebrew people would do, which was a type of what God was doing for the whole world. And so the ones that went off the nine were called Israel because um, they took the name that Jacob had when he wrestled with God. And the ones that were left was Judah and Simeon. And Simeon was right in the middle of Judah and just kind of got absorbed. So the Simeonites lost their identity and really became Judean. And what you read about as you progress through the kings is you read about this northern kingdom and this southern kingdom in division and civil war um, becoming more and more and more like the world. In fact, the northern kingdom was never had a good king. That doesn't mean that there weren't good followers in the northern kingdom. In fact, some of the prophets were from the northern kingdom that were going to tell their own people in their own community, hey, God doesn't approve of this. This isn't who God is. If you want to have true communion with him, you need to be holy as he is holy. You need to be pure as he is pure. 
You need to have this heart condition where sacrifice and offering, burnt offering, is not even required. Right? And we see this, this divided kingdom, no good kings in the north. There was a series of eight good kings in the south, of which in Second Kings chapter 17, we are not yet to all of the good kings that would yet come. There would be some that would come, like Josiah, that was a great king. Um, you would have uh, some that were already in play, um, like uh, Hezekiah, who um, was the king to come as Assyria came in to bring God's judgment on the northern kingdom. We read in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7, it says, Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. So the reason that Israel was having uh, a set of problems in the world, the world has problems just naturally, but they were going to get a, di a different kind of problem. They were going to get, they were going to become a conquered people. In fact, they would never ever again, even to this day, stand as a unified nation. They would continue to be a conquered people. And it says, they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. So we see the leadership had been corrupt. They, and the people, just became like the people around them. So this is very applicable when we look at what happens as we move from what we call the Christian culture in the United States to a pluralistic culture where all religions are good. A lot of roads can lead to God. Um, you can redefine righteousness to your own standard, just like we redefine marriage, right? You can do all these things. So this is what was going on in Israel, in the northern kingdom. The sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. In other words, their heart was corrupted. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all of their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. So no matter where you went, what you saw <coughs> was that the actions of the people expressed the heart condition. That they had fallen into idolatry to such a point that it just was natural. You walk into that place, you see the shrine. Right? They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there burned incense on all the high places as the nation did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all, the, all of his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent you through my servant, the prophets. However, they did not listen and stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an asherah, worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. Let me stop there. One, one of the things I've observed invading um, the Western culture uh, and in the U.S. in particular, because this is where I live, is the idea of magic. It's been gaining foothold continually for a couple of hundred years now to the point where people really want to believe in magic. They want to believe that through enchantment, that through a power that is within you, you can control the world outside of you. And Karen and I are watching, because we are we do Netflix binging from time to time, and so one of the things that we've been watching to excess is a program out of uh, Great Britain called Merlin. And the whole um, mythology around a great king. What made him great? Magic made him great. 
not his magic, but the magic which he allowed around him. And that there was this battle between magic and righteousness that was going on internally within this man, King Arthur. And so what you see is you see in Western culture all of these things that Israel did, the northern kingdom, that cost them to come under um, judgment. And that the judgment was that they would just be displaced. That God wouldn't completely kill them, take them out, but he would make them such that they no longer had that pure identity. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. So what we're seeing is that the, uh, the distinction that these people had that made them priests to the world, that they were to present Yahweh as the true God, that they were to be an example within the world of mediation between God and man, um, that they were so offensive to God in what they were doing he said, okay, we're done now. Man, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear God say, okay, we're done now. Uh, but that's what happened. He said, we're done now. And, and not only that, he said, also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. This is the reason why everything which followed happened. So you're going to continue to read through uh, the Kings and the Chronicles and you're going to come to the end of Chronicles and the, and the final kings before they become a completely um, conquered peoples. So Judah stood for a while longer. Um, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians took them off with hooks in their mouth, naked. So they dragged them off as prisoners, and they resettled the land. And we understand that they had to reintroduce some of the cultic practice because they were concerned about the, the lions and the tigers and the bears and Oh my, and so they brought some priests back in, and now we have the Samaritans, right? We have a syncretic religion that has a form of the true religion, but it is not. And that's why it was offensive to, the, to those that had the form of the true religion and were supposed to embrace it, the Judeans. And so what happens is, is you get to the end of, uh, of Chronicles, Josiah, who was the last reformer king, dies, his son comes in, Jehoahaz, and then Jehoiakim, and, uh, and Jehoiachin, and what happens is, is through a succession of kings, this one called Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, is actually taken off in captivity. And he ends up in Babylon. And he's the one that, um, through that line, preserving of that Judean line, he would have a couple of kids that were followers of God, and they would end up through the lineage, if you follow it through, um, you get great guys like Shealtel and Zerubbabel, great names, and I think that we should choose those for our children today. And uh, you get these Judean uh, descendants that go back into the land and are obedient to God to a degree. And that's leading up to that intertestamental period. What What is it that they did do? What is it that they didn't do that was in accord with God? But what we do know is that the last of the setting kings in Jerusalem, a guy by the name of Zedekiah, um, he ended up ruling for 11 years until he rebelled against the king of Babylon and then he was completely uh, taken out. And Jerusalem was completely sacked and destroyed in 586 B.C. And that all of the trappings that had not been removed in, in previous um, sackings of Jerusalem were taken out and no one was left in the land except the servants except the, the lowliest of people to farm a land that had been destroyed and that's what you read at the end of, of uh, Chronicles but Chronicles ends on a happy note it says now in the first year this I'm reading in uh, 2 Chronicles the very end chapter 36 and uh, you read about those final kings, and you get to verse 22 of 36, 2 Chronicles, and it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus the king of Persia, 
so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So, even in the midst of judgment, where the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians came and conquered the southern kingdom, and they were taken off into captivity, before they even were finally taken, God promised that that was not the end. That there would be a deliverance. That his righteous king would come, just as he had promised. And that at the end of Chronicles, I say this ends on a good note because it is here that that promise starts its fulfillment. And where we're going to pick up next week, because I took longer than I expected, is we're going to pick up on a particular prophecy of Daniel, which is uh, a prophecy, and I'll blow this up and pass it out next week, but there was a prophecy that Messiah would come and that he would, in fact, truly deliver the peoples of the earth. That he would die once for all. That the whole point of this cultic practice and sacrificial system was about what God was going to do in, action, in order to actually redeem humanity and to conquer death. Right. So a couple of things happened. There was forgiveness of sin, where God holds you harmless. Um, and there was new life, which was the evidence that was given with the empty tomb. And that's the, that's the good news, right? That's the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and that he was buried. So it really happened according to the very way that the cultic practice required. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, and there are a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. That's what we're about. We're about that. That was what was foretold. They didn't get it. Jesus had to explain it to them on the road to Emmaus. He had to come into their presence and allow those first-hand witnesses to actually see and touch him and understand what God had actually done. But it was foretold long before. And what we see is that there was uh, a period where um, these subsequent kings, the kings of Persia, would actually make declarations to allow the people to go back and to rebuild the temple and the wall around Jerusalem. We're going to read about it in Nehemiah. And so that's the, the reference here you see in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Um, Artaxerxes, um, in, in the 20th year of his reign, actually made this proclamation, and you start this whole period, of which... You're gonna, we're going to see there, there is some revelation that occurs during that period. Haggai, for example, talks to the people about how they're building the church. Or the, not the church, the, the temple. Right? But we're going to see that there are those that come after them in this intertestamental period that really get this. They became very zealous about the coming of Messiah and how that's going to lead up to when the true Messiah comes. A lot of misunderstanding. Those guys were called the Pharisees. So that's where we'll pick up next week is at the beginning. I'll probably trace some of this history through um, the Persians and the Greeks and uh, the intrusion of the Romans. And then we'll give you a large picture of history. Then we'll start drilling down the extra biblical literature. Let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Lord, we thank you for opportunity, uh, one, to come to your word and, and ask challenging questions and come away with answers. Lord, even if they're incomplete, we know that you... Uh, we'll continue through your spirit to reveal truth to us, that you will pick our hearts um, in a way that makes us curious and to dig deeper um, and not be satisfied until we are in communion with you in a way that is so sweet that we desire nothing else and never want to be parted from you. Lord, um, we thank you for, for that opportunity. We thank you for an opportunity to uh, explore both through the Bible that you preserve for us, as well as other writings, um, how you are preparing the way for Messiah to come, and to both minister and show what it's like in your kingdom, 
and also to actually accomplish your plan of salvation. And Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you would be with uh, Dave Schroeder this morning as he speaks, that you would be with the business meeting later this afternoon. Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your provision and your protection in a dangerous world that doesn't like Christians. Um, Lord, we thank you for this, and we thank you so much for what you've done for us on the cross. We thank you for your goodness. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.